welcome to the Rugged Edge Survival Guide, a Rugged Edge computing podcast by Premio, where it's all about the hardware I.O. Join us on our constant search into how embedded computing solutions are transforming the enterprise business landscape. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Rugged Edge Survival Guide, a premio podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We really appreciate you listening along for more Rugged Edge computing thought leadership. As we get into today's topic, make sure that you're heading to our website, premioinc.com. Again, premioinc.com for more information on solutions and services and, of course, other pieces of premio content. And also make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous episodes as well as notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's episode of the podcast, we're exploring the transformative industry trends and technologies that are going to most shape 2021 and beyond, intersecting how said trends are being shaped by a variety of different technologies, including compute, storage, and connectivity technologies. We'll be breaking down updates to automation tech, automated devices, edge computing, the cloud, and much more, speaking to how different market forces are leading these various transformations. So for insights on the technology and its importance, I'm pleased to re-welcome frequent guest Dustin Situ, Product Marketing Director at Premio. Dustin, great to have you back on. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, we're making our ways through this uh, pandemic and COVID-19 situation. So I kind of wish, you know, to the audience and everyone that everyone's staying healthy and hopefully, you know, getting the vaccines as they come out. So it's a uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess the same. Uh, I remember us having a few conversations since uh, the pandemic has hit and each one, uh, you know, kind of starts the same with fingers crossed, hoping that we get past the other side uh, quickly. Uh, and I don't know, all, all my optimism uh, hasn't really paid off yet. Things are still bad. So fingers crossed that the vaccine distribution happens quickly and we can get back to some semblance of normal so we can all feel a little more more empowered. I'm with you there. Yeah, 100%. I think in that year's period, um, I think technology as a whole has all shaped our lives and you know brought some benefits here and there. So um, in this, this thought leadership and discussion, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about some of those technologies. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll definitely intersect some COVID conversation here to start as well. So we better understand the market forces that are influencing the transformative tech we're breaking down today. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right into it, Dustin. Let's start at a general level. Uh, we've been seeing, like you said, a massive intersection of hardware and software around compute technology as of late, which is creating both disruption and opportunities around strategic enterprise level technologies. Can you lay out some of the key reasons why such a computing technology is so valuable for today's economy? Yeah, so I think that's a very great question. Um, and you kind of highlighted what the economy is, right? So uh, the economic factor of what COVID has done is definitely put a strain on the entire economy. So I think in the next coming years, I think business as a whole needs to take a step back and really look at where their investments are going into in terms of their, you know, their ownership, but really where do they want to put their investments? And a lot of those investments, I think uh, what COVID did was really kind of put a strain to investing into a lot of these newer technologies to kind of shape, um, you know, better workflows, you know, to support, you know, collaboration and just better business efficiencies. So, I mean, if you just kind of look at technology as a whole, I think what technology really does is that it drives major benefits for, you know, convenience. And what it really does is that it streamlines many, you know, traditional legacy processes that probably took longer than normal. So um, how that's being valuable in today's digital economy, right, is now being able to take a lot of this data to be able to process, store and connect the world, the global world altogether in order for better efficiency. So um, really, I mean, right now what we're seeing and it continuously trends over time is this digitization of data. And this data comes from all these devices that are coming online. And as these devices come online, they have information that needs to be aggregated. It needs to be processed. And really what's that driving 
is helping shape these new models for uh, intelligence, machine learning, and ultimately artificial intelligence. So I think what COVID and the pandemic really kind of put forth is it really showcased and highlighted these extremely beneficial value uh, add-ons of what technology is doing and really help uh, the human and the global population to have more conveniencies and more efficiencies to drive better operational goals and business goals. So, I mean, really right now, I think where, where the focus is in a lot of these business enterprises is taking this transformation of data and really moving it and looking at the workload of how it's going to provide insights how it's going to give results and really how it's going to really uh, help them make better business decisions to prevent a lot of these these risks. We mentioned COVID to start. I want to get your thoughts on those market forces as well. Have you seen any COVID-driven wheels of the market such as remote workflows or corporate consolidation or um, you know expanded and restructured networks, digital networks, and um, uh, telecom networks, have any of these forces or any others that I didn't mention, have they had any impact on the need for more innovative compute technologies? And if so, uh, you know, what kind of level of impact are we talking about here? Yeah, so I think um, it's, it's different on every different type of enterprise goal and what they're looking for. But in general, as a whole, I would agree uh, with your statements 100% that um, a lot of what COVID did kind of shaped a lot of the work, uh, remote workflows. It kind of shaped how people are interacting, how business uh, businesses are interacting with their customers, how customers are accessing information for you know certain business channels. Um, but I think uh, what COVID and pandemic really did is it really tested the elasticity, elasticity, the range, and truly the value of what technology is. And what technology was doing is that it provided to be um, an accelerator for a lot of these newer type of uh, models. So, um, you know, especially when we're talking about compute tech, right? Uh, the ultimate goal is taking these frameworks, aggregating that data and having the ability to process, store and connect all this data, which is very, very valuable um, in the 21st century, specifically in quarantine. So I have a few examples that we can kind of walk through that we experienced, I think most people experienced during COVID. That first example being, you know, shifting from uh, going into the office daily workflow into now moving all your activities, all your, 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 your interactions into a war, remote workflow uh, and corporate consolidation, at, like you mentioned. So um, the challenge there is kind of migrating all these tasks, all these assets into an area to where it still delivers uh, efficiency for the workforce. So um, I think where uh, the cloud uh, and all the cloud assets and, you know, being able to uh, interact with the the cloud dashboards and having access to all the resources, um, you know, before for for remote work that has been uh, monumental um, during uh, COVID, specifically allowing you know different departments organizations to still maintain and hit their goals. Uh, a second example that I think was interesting to really see, and I think we're still learning and still growing from this, and I've been reading a lot about it, is. Uh, the ability for a lot of educational systems and online learning for schools, right? I think this was a major challenge during COVID because um, I think uh, learning is is a very unique element where it's a very unique process with between teachers and students. But schools really had to figure out how to leverage the technology out there to streamline the learning platforms. So whether that be technology and providing you know connectivity uh, for students, right, uh, when they're sitting at homes especially even with, you know, simple hardware as in laptops for them to even access this information. And then third is like moving all this, this information, lessons, curriculums into a digital platform definitely was not easy. So um, I think that was something where technology, technology itself is continuously going to grow and help this type of digital learning platform continue to grow and, you know, as a result from COVID. And, and the third, I think, um, is a major shift in, like I mentioned, these digital channels for retail and commerce. So not only are these uh, retail models looking to get closer to their consumers, but I think consumers are also taking an active step 
to really move into the digital channels because they're really stuck at home and not able to really go out into the retail stores. So I think a perfect example of this, and then I will share my personal example, what I've learned is um, just simple uh, grocery shopping and buying your everyday essentials that you usually do when you go to your local grocery store. Um, and a key example here was, I think what Amazon did and their whole, whole Foods platform is they moved that entire shopping experience into a digital platform. And it was very unique for me is that I was able to sit on my couch as if I was, you know, scrolling through my smartphone and had a digital aisle, like I was in a supermarket and I was able to go through and actually pick out everything that I needed for the week. But if you go down one a layer even deep, um, you, you, you even have the interaction with the person that's picking the actual item from the shelf at the store. So for example, if there's an item that is, you know, that you've selected and it's not really uh, available, that person can have direct communication with you at that moment in time through connectivity and have a decision on what to pivot to, to you know, in terms of a, another object. So after, um, even after they collected all that, uh, all the groceries, I mean, even having the, the actual ability to see the driver in this car, make that delivery and drop it off in front of your home, that was incredibly huge, you know, in terms of t uh, leveraging technology uh, during such uh, COVID times. And I think what we're going to see is a lot of those COVID-driven market forces aren't just going to go away when we return to whatever normal <laughs> looks like. Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways, they reflect changes that were already happening in these various spaces and really just accelerated the adoption of various technologies. Um, and I, I think we're going to see as uh, you know the business world looks to how can we make do with less or how can we continue to get more efficient as uh, you know the the margins for error become tighter and tighter. Uh, I think a lot of the trends are about to break down will fit in nicely to um, you know to that broader COVID context and some of the ways that I think we're going to see technology employed in the future. Yeah, no, I think you hit one thing that I want to kind of touch on is that they're not going to go away. And I think and when we're in crisis mode, specifically in pandemics, it forces businesses to really come up with new solutions and think and implement things for change. And as you know, you know, change is not easy across the board. Change is not easy to implement, especially when you're in a large, large enterprise organization. Um, so I, I read something that was really interesting that I want to share. Um, so McKinsey was just a leading, you know, research consultant. Um, they basically did a survey and they, you know, surveyed all these C-suite executives, all these senior managers, and they basically asked them a question and, and to, in response to COVID-19, you know, what changes that they implement um, that they thought that were impossible that they were able to succeed um, during this pandemic. So there's three uh, items that they actually were extremely successful that they thought were almost impossible to implement over a long period of time. So that number one being um, increasing use of advanced technologies in their everyday business operations. So in that survey, the expected time frame days wise is that they thought they would it would take them you know to implement these advanced technologies. You know, 672 days. If you actually look at the time take it took for them in a crisis mode, they were able to implement advanced technologies in almost around uh, 26 actual days, right? So the acceleration factor to that is that they did that 25 times faster, right, in crisis mode. Another thing that I mentioned that they were able to do is really increasing the migration of these, these assets, right, into a digital cloud environment where uh, their workforce can really access that. You know, the expected days for that was almost 547 days. They were able to do this in 23 days, right? So you can see that, you know, um, when there's some type of crisis, enterprise businesses are really starting to figure out how to be efficient, how to be more productive. And then last but not least is the uh, spending on data security. And it's just a natural progression as you move more assets into the cloud and it's going back and forth between different uh, layers, um, you know, different uh departments and you know their individual workplaces um, whether that be at home that expected day range was around 449 days so they were able, actually able to you know use more data security uh, around 24 actual days so um, that survey was very interesting to me to kind of showcase that you know what you mentioned daniel is that a lot of the changes that are that are made um, short term are definitely going to be there long term for the beneficial of the overall you know business or enterprise 
Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and break down some of those transformative industry trends and technologies that are going to shape 2021 and beyond. We've got three main ones that we're going to break down, but uh, you know, I think it's important to note that each of these technologies intersects with the other and also intersects with various other important technologies that we may not totally hit on. So, you know, this is just a selected view of some top trends. Uh, If we don't get to your favorite trend, you know, don't send us any hate messages, <laughs> but but let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, we'll start with the first one, which is hyper automation. So this is a tech trend that is taking the more traditional automation that uh, I think the average consumer or business professional is used to and empowering it with more refined artificial intelligence and machine learning. And this is seen across a variety of different tools, not just to support the automation itself, uh, but also provide more holistic analysis, measuring, monitoring, and uh, discovery. So really just a, a broader and more efficient kind of automation. So when we think about machine learning practically, how does it work with various enterprise tools that are driving artificial intelligence today? I think this will help us uh, get a better picture for why hyper automation is a thing in the first place. I mean, hyper automation is just a very cool way of just streamlining automation. And then if you just look at automation, what that's doing is just providing uh, automated tasks that doesn't require a lot of human effort that has been streamlined and it can provide an actionable result uh, based on some type of programmable function. So uh, taking one step back, right? Well, machine learning itself is, is not something that's new. Um, I think humans are always looking to automate tasks uh, for better efficiency. But what machine learning is, it's that it's it, it requires a large, a large amount of data sets and a large amount of storage in order to take a lot of this information to develop um, these, these uh, machine learning algorithms for success. So how this was done in the past and how traditionally what it's been doing in terms of data, data aggregation is that um, in order to actually drive these machine learning models, um, all this data... Uh, through big data analytics would need to be pumped into these you know, large data centers where they have the resources for uh, the post-processing, uh, you know, they have the resources for the deep learning uh, to really enhance the machine's ability for what the ultimate goal is for automation is delivering some type of intelligence, right? So how does this benefit the enterprise businesses? So the enterprise businesses um, are not just interested in the ability for faster, better processing, um, but really the key element for these businesses to have better control. Once you have better control, you have the ability to, to make better decisions. Once you have better decisions, you can make, you know, uh, cut costs, you can prevent um, risks. And as a business, and you look at a business as a whole, those are very key defining elements of making a business successful. So really, I mean, when you look at uh, hyper automation, the key is really uh, to offer the ability for enterprises to very quickly institute action, but also change Uh, in the response of real-time events based on what the data is showing in real time. I think what's going to be helpful for the audience and the people listening is to really identify three levels of uh, hyper-automation and how technology really kind of facilitates that in a a closed loop of hyper-autonomy. So uh, the first stage that's the most important of hyper-automation is what I call and what a lot of people are defining as a, a cognition stage. So the definition of cognition as a whole, right, is once you have cognition, you have the ability to acquire intelligence, you have an ability or you have the ability to acquire knowledge and understanding through thought, experience and senses. So um, if you kind of look at what these IoT sensors or Internet of Things and what these things are doing is all these sensors that are deployed, whether, you know, um, they all have a way to sense and harm and turn that into a data. So if you kind of look and compare an analogy of humans, humans do the same exact thing, but we do it um, innately. We do it naturally. We basically use our five senses, right? We use our senses of sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. And what that does is that helps us humans to really generate a contextual and situal awareness of the situation to make a better decision. So in the sense of hyper automation, the machine needs to have that cognition where that can leverage the data and basically build their own context and awareness. Um, So this is a perfect segue uh, in terms of hyper automation where um, there's this thing called the digital twin. Um, and what a digital twin is doing is essentially very similar to a human twin. It's a, it's a carbon copy of the actual asset that's being deployed. And why that's beneficial when you have a digital twin 
is that you can now do a lot of the data manipulation and modeling um, that can use to automate these type of business decisions. So um, it can be used as, say, for example, a proxy to run some type of model um, in that twin before it actually gets deployed. This is the, the kind of the, the first stage of the hyper automation that's creating this cognition. A second stage of hyper automation that is very important that ties into the cognition that comes after is the intelligence, right? So once you have that situational awareness and context, you can now build the intelligence. And once the machines can have the sense of this awareness, it can start now really deliver um, their machine learning algorithms and really streamline the decision making, right? So um, once the machine's able to have that early detection, once it has the models for predictive analytics, um, this is where the hyper automation and the full business goal of control is coming. And that is a perfect segue into the third step of hyper automation, which is having the full control or full closed autonomy to really provide the intelligence for real time business results. And I mean, this, you know, this is all made possible uh, currently in a lot of the automation through a lot of, you know, uh, AI enabled robotics. Um, that are using sensing through cognition intelligence to really kind of uh, culminate into a full circle of, of hyper automation. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the three steps of uh, hyper automation. Love it. Thanks for that in-depth breakdown. So with that in mind, have advancements in hardware had any impact on making hyper automation more powerful or more feasible for a, a wider variety of business use cases? Uh, yes, no, and if so, how? Yeah, so uh, coming from the hardware side, and you know, being in hardware, Premium as a whole has been in hardware computing, and, you know, electronics for thirty plus years. Um, I would say hyper automation really relies on dedicated hardware to really facilitate the uh, the steps of the hyper autonomy, right? This, uh, whether that be cognition, intelligence, all the way to full autonomy. Um, I really truly believe that you know hardware and software um, is truly binded through a true partnership because uh, a lot of the software algorithms, right, are are written to run on perform performance based hardware. The software algorithm will dictate, okay, if it needs to balance between, you know, X amount of hardware, X amount of cores, whatever it's doing in order to kind of uh, deliver that type of level of intelligence. But really, I think uh, a good example of um, kind of where this this hardware advancements is making making place is the element of uh, kind of where deep learning is happening, right? So a lot of the data centers are using a lot of robust purpose-built hardware or purpose-built technologies to really deliver these uh, deep, deep, deep intelligent neural networks. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about like high-performance compute, uh, when you're talking about these massive scale of, you know, uh, training machines for, you know, in-depth intelligence, if you really look at the hardware, it's just really uh, robust, extremely performance-based, you know, uh, CPUs, GPUs, high-performance uh, memory, um, there's, you know, non-volatile memory storage for faster read and write for hot tier storage. And there's even, uh, you know, computational storage, right? And this computational storage is something that's new. Um, what computational storage is doing is saying it doesn't need to uh, kind of go back to the host architecture for the CPU to do the processing. It's moving some of that processing closer to where the data is, which is on that storage drive. So um, what that does is that it creates an extremely amount of processing power when you need it in real time. Um, I think a second example to showcase kind of where a lot of this purpose-built hardware is kind of driving this 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 automation and this hyperintelligence is um, shifting into what's the, the inference model. Um, and I, I spoke about this in, in past podcasts as well. But what inference modeling is is after a machine has been trained in the cloud or after the machine has been actually uh, intelligent, you can move that model into an inference where uh, you can use. Uh, specific purpose-built hardware to make an inference. An easy example to understand is, you know, if, if you were training a machine to recognize images of an animal, say for a dog, um, once it knows, uh, has a 99% accuracy of, you know, it can recognize a dog, you could move that into an inference model to where the sensor will pull, pull some of that imagery into a, a compute hardware, and then it can basically inference that you know, very quickly uh, that this is uh, a dog. Um, so um, I think another another thing is it's really evident to kind of see where they're going, right? So there's a lot of major tier one companies out there that are trying to get as close to uh, either better, faster processing or even connectivity. So just to kind of share some industry news, right? 
um, NVIDIA, which is a leader of GPUs. I mean, there's a reason why uh, they've purchased and uh, acquired Mellanox, right? Mellanox is all connectivity. And then they've also even purchased ARM, right? ARM is another uh, processor for semiconductor processing. So another example of that is even, you know, AMD, right? AMD traditionally is a leader in, uh, you know, processing in semiconductors. Um, they're also, they recently purchased uh, Xilinx for their uh, FPGAs, right? So they can dedicate a lot of uh, their function for these new machine learning models. Last but not least, right, when we're talking about all these these things, where does Premio fit in in terms of hyper automation? So um, where we're really driving this market penetration is really looking at all these different technologies, but looking at it from a, from a system level and from a, from a compute level, a storage level, a connectivity level, um, we're able to really consolidate all our engineering, mechanical engineering, and kind of deliver uh, what we're calling a rugged edge computer for a lot of these newer edge type of environments. And where we really focus on that is really kind of focused uh, in our ruggedization of our industrial computers for a lot of these harsh environments. So um, we look at it from a system level approach. Uh, we really make sure the product is can endure these harsh, harsh, harsh environments, whether it be from a freezing cold environment to a scorching hot environment. Um, but that range can go as low as, you know, negative 40 to 85 C. You know, in these applications, you know, balance of power and efficiency and performance and energy savings is extremely important. Um, and being able to really deliver performance, but also having that ability to control your power is, is, is huge for these applications. And then um, taking, taking the ability of a fanless design where it kind of endures the longevity um, and the reliability of the product. Another thing is uh, a shock and vibration, right? Shock and vibration is something that is, is very detrimental to a lot of, you know, standard computers. So, um, and, and once, once you're able to kind of deliver a, a solution where it's resistant to shock and vibration, you definitely have uh, more endurance um, and, and reliability for the product itself. All right, last main thing I want to touch on with hyper automation is better understanding the applications that are making best use of it. So could you break down a few of the applications that are benefiting the most from more powerful hyper automation and uh, connect the dots for us with how this is resulting in more efficient processes as well as output for the companies that are using hyper automation? Yeah, so kind of going back to what I mentioned, and I think if you kind of uh, instill those three key uh, elements of what hyper automation is from, you know, your cognition, intelligence, and uh, control, I think a good example of that in terms of an application is industrial automation specifically focused on robotics automation. So, I mean, if you look at robotics as a whole um, on a factory floor, a robotic on its own, uh, without any type of programming, without any type of cognition intelligence, it wouldn't be able to do pretty much of anything, right? So when people or when manufacturing facilities are using robotics and they're trying to eliminate and create hyper autonomy, they're trying to create hyper automation, so something in their their processes. So um, you know, if it's a robotic uh, arm that is able to de decipher, you know, things moving down a line in order to pick it off the line and move it to a packaging bin. Uh, say, for example, uh, you know, a soda can, for example, um, this robotics uh, has to be trained, it has to have the vision technology, has to have the computer vision technology to recognize and sense that this what the contextual awareness that they're in. Um, they have the intelligence to, over time through more data, right, to say, okay, I know for a fact that this robotic arm can now be able to, you know, choose. And then once you have that, that final kind of control, um, you, you humans really can take a step back and let the audit hyper automation run, kind of run its course and really take uh, an evaluative measurable um, step back to say how they can improve efficiencies based on um, the automation that's put into place. And actually, I've got one more follow up question there for you. How do you see hyper automation continuing to evolve moving forward if Hyper automation really is just a, a further refinement of existing automation and machine learning techniques to make for more robust data analysis and capture uh, and, you know, really uh, create tools that are powerful for the end users. Where do we go next with hyper automation? You know, what what comes after? How do you continue to refine the technologies? It really becomes a way for you extreme amounts of machine uh, intelligence for artificial intelligence. So 
Um, right now, the machines are, are very kind of reactive into the sense of that they're moving into an hyper automation state. I think um, in the future, these machines really are going to move into kind of like a, a Terminator world where AI can really kind of start to make decisions uh, before uh, we even actually can make a decision. So we'll see. I mean, yeah, it's technology will continue to grow, but I think it's, it really stems into uh, the ability to make a decision well before things are even happening to control risk. All right, Dustin, let's jump into our next big trend for 2020, and that would be the empowered edge. So this is uh, another trend that kind of uh, plays on the same theme as hyper automation, which is taking uh, existing technology trends that have already been making an impact um, across various industries and just further refining them or, uh, you know, taking them to their next logical step. So whereas edge computing, just regular edge computing already focuses on bringing information processing, collection and delivery closer to the source, empowered edge looks to take that one step further uh, to support the steadily increasing use of IoT devices while still pushing for um, data collection and processing as close to the source as possible. Now, obviously, if we're talking about IoT devices, uh, which when deployed at an enterprise level can you know, be numerous, uh, that becomes more challenging. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. If edge computing is already pushing for this kind of compute proximity, if that's already the goal of edge computing, what is the value of a push for an empowered edge? What's really the difference here? Yeah, so I think um, empowered edge, another way to look at empowered edge is to really just drive it with the key goal of it is really it's called uh, intelligent edge, right? Um, and like you mentioned, similar to the hyper automation trend, it's really moving these these application specific workloads or intelligent models that have been trained closer to where the data is, and then it can move into a quick uh, inference, right? And this really is driving the performance at the edge uh, specifically. So, um, you know, applications and their workloads right, are unique now because these applications get to dictate the type of compute power required um, to really run these inference models. So it's key here is that, you know, every business is different. Every edge compute model is different all these business investments that are, you know, looking at the return and return on what they can do with edge computing really need to understand their application and what the application is doing and what type of compute power is that, that they need. So they can kind of map out that data flow from where the, you know, endpoint all the way kind of back to the cloud. So, um, you know, what's, what's something that where Premio is really focused on and a theme amongst the, you know, our, our engineers and our embedded team is that um, we are really moving into um, intelligent edge, but really we define um, that empowered edge as something that we're kind of carving our way into, which is a rugged edge computing. So um, rugged edge computing is, you know, embraces all the key elements of benefits of moving data closer to where data is being generated from these IoT sensors. But it really kind of decentralizes a lot of this local uh, processing in a low latency environment in a product or a computer that has been hardened for the reliability and the ruggedization of these edge computers. So, um, you know, what we've seen is that there's these, these new demands, right, to, to empower the edge and there's new applications and workflows that require these very specific purpose-built edge computing architectures. And what that's doing is that um, it's really challenging a lot of these engineers who traditionally haven't really designed in these type of environments and they have to deploy and come up the, with these solutions outside their comfort zones um, where they're traditionally just, you know, always having a controlled environment. So quite literally, you know, where premium fits into the, the dirty sandbox. So I like to say, right, um, is that, we, you know, the products that we come up with design and, and we facilitate as, you know, rugged edge computers really are made to be down and dirty. Um, so we really recognize the need to balance, um, you know, the software advancements with hardware strategies, uh, really by providing a rugged high performance, uh, you know, computer that is able to survive in the most physical um, set physical um, settings, right, in, in the environment. So um, we look at everything from the external enclosure, everything from the internal components, everything um, from the mechanical and the thermal engineering that we put into our test labs, um, you know, to ensure that, you know, in the environment where the rugged edge computer will be, that it's going to still be able to 
interact with this mission critical data and not have any downtime, which is very, very critical for a lot of these uh, empowered edge. As we continue to kind of move into the empowered edge, I think our leadership in our, our, our rugged edge design and our, our manufacturing scale really allows us to open up a new world of uh, IoT uh, integration automation capabilities for a lot of our clients and our, our integrators into these edge computing deployments. An essential part of what is pushing edge computing forward are obviously the specific transformative technologies that are demanding closer to destination computing. Uh, and I think that intersection of hardware and you know it empowering a broader push for edge computing is important to highlight. So the big three uh, technological improvements to computing architecture that at least in my opinion, are, are doing a lot of the heavy lifting here, are improvements to CPUs and GPUs, expansion of 5G network capabilities, and cloud computing in general. So can you give us some insights on these three and how they're intersecting with rugged edge computing um, and how are they empowering an empowered edge? Sure, yeah. Um, this, is a, this is a pretty interesting topic. Um, and these are very big uh, transformative technologies that are, you know, shaping across a lot of different uh, market verticals. Um, but in simple form, right? These these transformative technologies and where they are in their 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 scale of their design is essentially a convergence of the latest and greatest performance consolidated into what we put into a ruggedized uh, computer designed for these hard environments. So, from my perspective, I think it's it's a very interesting time in compute. Because um, you know many of these applications and the workloads that they're required to run are demanding hardware uh, more hardware requirements in terms of better processing, better memory I/O, and even more uh, connectivity. So to go back to kind of that first uh, transformative technology, whether that be GPU or CPU and GPU, they're basically fundamental computing en uh, engines that have. Um, been dedicated for applications at the edge. So um, both of them are, you know, traditionally share a very close relationship when it comes to machine learning and processing power, um, but they really have their, their distinct advantages when um, you're kind of looking at the machine learning model. So for example, um, CPUs always have been considered kind of the brain of any type of compute architecture. And what a CPU does is basically kind of, it's, it's you know, all these transistors that are embedded onto a semiconductor silicon. And what CPUs basically are instructed to do is and execute commands and process them based on programs that are designed in a very um, multitask, uh, serial and sequential order um, that are able to deliver low latency. Um, but one of the one of the I would say disadvantages of a CPU is that once it um, it's, it's been designed to kind of do more serial sequential computing. So in order to you know move on to a next task, it basically uses multiple cores complete that task and then go to the next task, right? So um, how you get more performance in a CPU is very simple, right? The more CPU, the more CPU cores that you put into a silicon, then you have more cores to actually do a lot of the, the task and the multitasking, um, you know, uh, for, for these machine machine learnings uh, algorithms. But on the, on the other hand, right, you have these, these, these high performance GPUs and the difference of the GPUs and how they're different is the GPUs use a lot smaller cores. Um, and there's a lot more of these cores, but they're beneficial um, in sense of parallel computing. And what parallel computing is, is that it's no longer using a serial or sequential type of compute. It's very dedicated through high throughput tasks, right? So um, when we're talking about high throughput tasks, GPUs are phenomenal for machine learning when it's dealing with image processing or you know, 3D rendering of, of images. If you look at those two type of architectures and those two type of processing architectures, what's really defining um, that growth and what's defining even more performance as the trends continue to grow are all based on, you know, standard uh, architectures and standard protocols. And one thing that's very common in the industry that everyone's continuing to talk about is, you know, that PCIe 4.0 um, serial bus and interconnect. So um, PCO, PCIe 4.0 is just the next generation to uh, you know computational hardware, and what PCO, PCIe uh, 4.0 um, does is essentially doubles the performance of you know PCIe Gen 3. So a good example of this, um, if you're for the techies out there, right? So if you know you have a PCIe 4.0 by 16 type of card. Um, if it's a, on a 4.0 generation, it doubles that performance. So that's by 16 uh, can do around 32 gigabytes per second in terms of performance. How, how does all that really tie into kind of um, 
the future of machine learning and how that's going to be, you know, localized, you know, at the edge. Um, these accelerators, these are all basically performance accelerators um, that are being designed in these ruggedized um, platforms, right, and being deployed in these ruggedized locations to really interact with the data. Um, so that's going to be um, one of the key the key elements and key uh, transformative transformative technologies, you know, in in edge compute. Uh, the second thing that we, we you mentioned, uh, 5G networks, and I think 5G, uh, everyone is familiar with 5G by now with all the telecommunication carriers, you know, promoting it. Uh, but what really the benefit of 5G is doing and why it's so transformative is that it's delivering kind of this ultra low latency uh, communication protocol for all these new devices, right? Um, and when you're talking about, you know, ultra low latency, uh, you're able to kind of pass data for these applications in a sub millisecond level, but also in a high frequency millimeter wave that delivers, you know, you know, 99.9999 reliability. Um, another thing is um, when you move into 5G, you have enhanced mobile broadband. And what enhanced mobile broadband is, is that now you have these 5G networks and there's no towers that are able to interact with devices and provide uh, extremely fast, you know, downlink speed of, you know, 20 gigabits per second and even uplink speed of 10 gigabits per second. And the last really benefit of um, 5G is that uh, machine to machine communication, right? So what that machine com machine to machine communication is providing is like, um, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a one square kilometer footage, these devices connected um, to over a million dis uh, device describers. And then uh, essentially it's, it's, it's a 90% reduction in the, the ener energy usage. So kind of the last transformative technology I think you mentioned that really benefits a lot of the edge computing architecture is really balancing the elements of cloud and why the cloud is, is so important. Over the years, the cloud has proven its, its, its benefit and I don't, I don't think it's gonna go anywhere. It's really about how these models are learning to kind of uh, power and use the elasticity of these um, large centralized data centers um, out to the, net, the network edge. Um, but what you're, you're going to really start to see and with edge computing is that you're going to start to see the scalability through what I what I call are these checkpoints. And what those checkpoints are, are basically uh, checks and balances of the disaggregation of where the AI workloads needs to be placed in terms of data from endpoint to cloud. So uh, a simple representation uh, would be, you know, you're going to have uh, mobile endpoints that communicate to some type of edge network. And then the edge network will go to kind of a, a nano data center, a nano data center will go to kind of a, a micro data center. And then that micro data center will kind of go to the, the final data center. So if you kind of look at the, the path of the pathways of the data, I mean, the question that every enterprise is going to define is, okay, at what stage in that in those checkpoints is what type of learning you want to do, what type of uh, machine learning you're trying to do with the data that's passing through. I want to get your thoughts on a stat here, Dustin, because uh, I think it highlights exactly why an empowered edge is necessary. So here we go. By 2023, there could be more than 20 times as many smart devices at the edge of the network as in conventional IT roles. And you know, I don't think that's unrealistic. I mean, in most uh, enterprise environments, we're already seeing s at least some IoT integrations, whether they're simple, like a thermometer built into a broader facilities network, or something much more robust, like uh, IoT-enabled uh, manufacturing equipment, right? So as this becomes more commonplace, uh, as 5G supports the proliferation of IoT, uh, what sort of hardware is going to be needed to support that scale of then subsequent computing? Uh, great, great question. I think I kind of touched on it in my last response of sure. how the cloud cloud is going to be kind of structured. I, I really do believe there's going to be like multiple layers of frameworks on how the data needs to be processed, stored, and analyzed. Um, so, I mean, as we continually have all these smart devices at the edge and, you know, come online, I think the key is um, is to truly map out the data flow from endpoint to sensor and understanding um, what type of hardware or compute power is needed to really interact with the data, inference that data, store the data, you know, push the data, um, you know, and really creates this data continuum um, really for two key pr uh, purposes. And I've mentioned it all throughout all the trends is that the ability to allow 
these uh, platforms to have machine learning capabilities, but ultimately drive some type of intelligent result for a better business decision or a better business insight. And finally, here with the Empowered Edge, uh, what are some of your thoughts on where this kind of IoT deployment is going to be seen? Like, Where exactly uh, do you imagine we're going to see really at scale IoT deployments that require such an empowered edge? Do you think it's going to be in manufacturing settings, smart city settings, um, more residential settings? What are your thoughts? It's currently already happening in a lot of the smart manufacturing and the industrial automation of monitoring assets and control. You know, you can imagine in a manufacturing line, there's a ton of different automated tasks that are happening, whether that be through, you know, automation lines, whether that be through programmable logic controllers, sensors. So, you know, within the last five years, I think that's where um, a lot of the Empowered Edge is really taking true benefits from um, to really streamline a lot of these trends starting from you know hyper automation um, and really driving the the robotics of this right so um, we work with uh, a few robotics companies we work with a few you know um, metrology companies and vision companies and what they're ex- essentially all they're doing is interacting with the data building models to really drive more uh, inferencing and decision making to help streamline their productivity and really drive, um, you know, more efficiencies for, you know, their their production. Perfect. Thanks for that. All right, Dustin, let's get into our last main trend that we were wanting to break down on the podcast today, and that would be AI security. So I think uh, as a trend, this is kind of the bow to tie all of our thought leadership together so far, uh, because while hyper automation empowered edge capabilities you know a, a wider network of iot devices and uh, autonomous enabled devices while all of this means more efficiency and more smart enterprise functionality it can also come with a lot of new security vulnerabilities and these vulnerabilities are often ones that it teams are just not prepared for or trained for especially when dealing with tech like ai so let's dig in there what makes AI deployments, in your view, particularly vulnerable to new security threats? Yeah, so I think um, if, if, if you kind of kind of walk through some of the discussion points that I made earlier, um, how you get to AI and how you get to get to some type of business decision is all based on, on data. And what makes data particularly vulnerable and, and specifically talking about AI is that once you move, once you're able to take that data and move it into an AI model, for something to reactively or make a change or make a, some type of business decision that's fully automated through hyper automation or the empowered edge, that opens up an opportunity for a lot of this vulnerability for, for, for cyber attacks. So, you know, for example, um, in a simple example, I think that we can talk about would be autonomous vehicles, right? Um, you know, autonomous vehicles are right now in kind of in, in proof of concept for a lot of different uh, car manufacturers. Um, what they're doing is they're basically doing these these POC test drive um, from point A to point B to really prove their autonomy uh, software algorithms, you know, working with all the sensory data. Um, but let's say, for example, they get to a stage of, you know, full level five autonomy where we're at a stage where we have autonomous cars driving around all throughout society, right? That potentially can open up uh, a lot of different uh, security risks be based on the AI, right? So if, you know, a hacker or someone went into it and was able to kind of take ownership of an autonomous vehicle to create, um, you know, either acceleration or some type of thing that that would be extremely uh, detrimental for, for the AI, right? So I think one thing that's key uh, when you're when you're discussing all these cool trends and all these cool um, things that are helping us with convenience and streamlining a lot of these things, I think uh, another element of it that ties it all together, like you mentioned, is, you know, really, really understanding uh, the elements of hardware security, understanding how to protect uh, very, very critical data for, for the application itself. Now, do you have any more specific examples of these kinds of vulnerabilities being exploited by bad actors? So just, you know, some some grounded examples of this at work. And then can you also explain what the consequences have been of uh, using AI as a vulnerable uh, security area? Yeah, I think um, a good, easy example, I think a lot of the, the people listening can probably understand and it all deals with like identity theft and like uh, privacy and information. 
Um, so I think a few, a few years back, I, I remember if you remember, uh, you know, Marriott, uh, the hotel chain, um, Marriott had like a huge, huge data breach on like all their, their, their personal information and why that's so dangerous. Right. And I think from a, from a level of you know, privacy is that, um, all this personal information and identity theft now can be, be sold to on the black market. And what that does is that creates, um, you know, a security vulnerability for identity theft. Um, so uh, it's, 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 it's very harmful, um, if, you know, enterprises or companies who are dealing with, you know, ident are dealing with all this data, um, uh, to not have any protections in place to protect, uh, you know, user data or privacy itself. Well, and obviously that's a high profile example of AI being targeted. Is the same happening to smaller to mid-sized companies is, uh, you know, the, the temptation to go after AI vulnerabilities the same for uh, deployments that are smaller or are bad actors mostly trying to exploit AI vulnerabilities in the most uh, high profile scale deployments? Good question. I think it depends. Um, I think hackers or uh, people who are looking to exploit are going to look for the easy elements of where um, security protections aren't built into place. So I don't think it really matters, honestly, if it's, you know, high profile uh, or, you know, small, medium sized. I think if there aren't protections in place for, you know, AI security itself, um, that just opens up a can of worms and a can of issues for exploitation, um, specifically in security breaches as a whole. So um, especially with your, when you're dealing with um, technologies that deal with data uh, you know, technologies that dealing with image capturing specifically, right? Because image capturing deal with actual information of physical identity, you know, people, faces, and all that is is extremely huge. So, um, I think it really, I, I don't know if it's if it's it's high profile or low profile. As long as there is a loophole in, or if there's a way in, I think um, it can be exploited. When we think about AI security, I think it's also important to hone in that there are. Um three key uh, factors or, I guess, aspects to AI security. So there's obviously protecting the AI systems. That's the most straightforward version. There's also leveraging the AI to enhance security, so using the AI as security. And then anticipating how attackers may use AI against you, which is uh, the more proactive approach to uh, preventative security. So how should IT and cybersecurity teams, in your view, weigh these various factors of AI security? What is important and where? The first one, uh, protecting AI-powered systems, um, if you just very simply is basically using um, the AI and training it to really have the protections in place to where it's becoming a little more uh, protective um, for these machine learning models itself because it's i mean essentially what you're kind of doing is um, using ai itself to protect itself the second point that you mentioned i think was key is you know leveraging ai to enhance security defenses and kind of what AI really is, if you look at it, it's, it's based on a machine that's been trained with data to really detect and make a decision. So kind of, you know, uh, for the good and the bad, right, you can actually use AI to enhance a security defense. So you can, you know, the same way you would train a machine to, to recognize images, you can also use the AI and machine learning to really understand uh, specific patterns uh, to really uncover attacks and really automate parts of whatever that cybersecurity process is, right? Because, um, you know, most of these cybersecurity attacks, there's, you know, if you investigate and you look into it, most of the times there's there's elements of weaknesses, right? There's, there's patterns that develop. So if you can really train the machine to kind of do that ahead of time, um, then it really cr creates a layer of enhanced uh, security. And then last but not least, um, as you mentioned, right, anticipating kind of that nefarious use of AI by attackers. You know, if the AI is smart enough and through time, right, through data, and it's becoming smarter and smarter and smarter, if it can raise a red flag to identify a potential attack um, and actually even deploy a, a, a solution or say like a defense mechanism way, a hell, a way ahead of the attack, um, you know, and control that environment, then you really, really have a strong um, element of AI security. 
Now, where does compute technology fit into supporting AI security? Uh, you know, why why is that an aspect of uh, the broader AI security conversation that is um, essential to hone into? I'm not going to, you know, tie into every single compute technology because I think in terms of, you know, machines and learning, there's going to be so many different layers and that can be you know, another podcast just to talk about security, cybersecurity as a whole. Um, but I think where it's most important is to tie into kind of uh, on the hardware level from a compute architecture, what are the kind of key pillars or the key protocols that are defining kind of um, the hardware security. Right. So um, one of the things that are built across all our, our products um, is based on a, a platform um, and a protocol that's defined by the industry standard. And that is the, the trusted platform uh, module 2.0. Um, and in the you know TPM 2.0 module, what is this doing? It's a physical hardware chip that is soldered down onto the board and that um, opens up all these different functions for um, hardware encryption, security, um, you can do authentication through, you know, a uh, certain type of, you know, fingerprint identification. Um, you can even have uh, bootloader codes to where it has to make a signature before um, you can even access a layer of software to even boot into the system. So um, kind of in a, in a general sense, right, um, from a hardware side, once you have this TPM chip on most microcontrollers, um, it actually now allows the data to be encrypted on the physical local uh, platform or edge computer uh, before it even actually needs to pass some of that data out of its box into a different network. So once, uh, essentially, I mean, if, if you're able to encrypt, uh, once the data is encrypted and protected, you know, even if there's potentials for, for attacks and if there's access to that information, if it's already been encrypted, um, there's no real downfall because the information has all been encrypted and it's unaccessible. All right, Dustin, I think that about does it for our conversation. We've broken down three key trends so far that are going to be shaping 2021 and computation technology. That includes hyper automation, the empowered edge and AI security. So let's go ahead and wrap up our podcast with a final uh, question or, uh, you know, might have a follow-up depending on your answer, but the last main topic, uh, just looking into the crystal ball a bit. So how should enterprise-level professionals, in your opinion, uh, specifically ones that are working with these technologies, how should they move forward into 2021 with all of these key trends in mind? And where should they start to strategically um, invest in compute power that can support all these various trends? Yeah, so I think uh, to, to recap, right, everything from hyper automation, uh, from edge compute, and kind of that uh, security layer, really, the investment comes into understanding um, what the application needs. And then the application will define really where the compute architecture needs for to really drive, um, you know, the machine learning and the intelligence. Right. So, I mean, the return on investment for many, many of these enterprises is really going to be coming from what's at the end result of the intelligence. Right. So once you can move into an, an intelligent layer, um, that intelligence is going to be able to you know, shape a lot of the different uh, changes in the operational organizational uh, structure in um, their business objectives. All that, if you can be done in an automated, uh, automated situation or an automated environment, um, is going to be extremely, extremely, extremely beneficial um, for these uh, major, major enterprises. So um, I think it's important to really keep their eyes open, ears open to what's changing in the market, um, specifically in a lot of this hardware technology, because uh, like I've mentioned before, I don't think the hardware is going to go anywhere. It's just only going to get more specific. Um, each specific type of hardware design is dedicated to a specific purpose, and that purpose is to really figure out more ways for better hyper automation, um, you know, bringing more intelligence to the edge, you know, aggregating that data and really delivering extreme amounts of uh, artificial intelligence. And hopefully we'll get to a point, you know, where um, artificial intelligence is not taking over our world, but really helping us even become even more streamlined and, and, and have more convenience in not only our personal lives, but also in our business lives. 
All right, Dustin C2, Director of Product Marketing at Premio, thank you so much for rejoining us and giving us some more insights today, breaking down the transformative industry trends and technologies that are going to most shape 2021 and beyond, and more importantly, intersecting how these trends are being shaped by compute, storage, and connectivity technology. So again, Dustin, I appreciate your time. And if folks want to find out more about Premio and some of the work that y'all are doing in this space, how can they get in touch or learn more? In order to kind of find more information about a lot of what we're, we're designing product-wise, please visit our, our website, and that is www.premioinc.com. Um, there's a section to where if you're really interested in learning about how um, certain compute architectures are helping a lot of these IoT and machine learning uh, inference model um, applications at the edge, uh, we have a lot of case studies that really kind of dive into those stories. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to uh, more technology in 2021 to come. Fantastic. Dustin, appreciate your time. We'll chat again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. Have a good one, everyone. Stay safe. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Rugged Edge Survival Guide, a Premio podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're going to our website, premioinc.com. Again, premioinc.com or subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.